Before we get started this morning, let me ask you if you can just voice a quick prayer for my voice. My voice is held out in the 8 o'clock service and the 9.30 service, so I know without a doubt it's going to hold, hold out for the 11 o'clock service, but my voice isn't very strong this morning, so just be praying for that. And then the second thing, next week we're going to have a guest speaker with us, Mark Elkins. Mark Elkins is a pastor in Kentucky. He's the pastor that we have been partnering with for a number of years with our mission work in Kentucky, Appalachia. And um, we're excited about Mark being with us. Mark is battling cancer right now and um, has an incredible story of God's grace and God's mercy in the midst of the storm and the power of prayer. And so I'm excited that Mark is going to be with us next week. So um, let me encourage you to be here. Well, if you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to hold it up. Whether you have a printed copy like I do or you have a digital copy on your phone and repeat after me what we believe about this book. This is God's Word. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. It is the supreme source of truth for what we believe and how we live. Now, to open up your copy of God's Word to two passages of Scripture this morning. The first one is in Genesis, Genesis chapter 6, first book of the Bible. That will be easy for you to find. And then the second one is the book of Matthew. The first book in the New Testament will be about maybe a quarter of the three quarters of a way through um, your Bible but Genesis chapter 6 Matthew chapter 24 I have in my hand here a relic from the not too distant past how many of you know what this is what is it it's, it's a record it's a vinyl album before you could download any song you wanted on your phone and play it through some app or before they had mp3 players or before they had cds or or eight track tapes or cassettes or anything like that they had vinyl records and this is what i grew up with this is what i listened to music on and boy i wish i would have kept all of my records back in the early 80s when i got my life right with jesus we were on this kick where you know, you're supposed to get rid of anything and everything that's a bad influence in your life. So I took all of my records from all of my rock bands and stuff like that, and I broke them up and burned them in a fire. Man, if I'd have kept those things, it'd be worth something today. And I could sell them and take my wife on a trip, but I don't have them anymore. But there's one thing about a record, a vinyl album that you need to realize. When you're, when you're playing a record, a vinyl album on your record player or phonograph, You've got to make sure that you're careful with the record. Because if the record gets scratched, then whenever the phonograph, the record player, gets to that point in the record, it's going to just keep on repeating itself over and over and over. Whenever the record would get scratched, it would get there, the needle would get there, and it would just keep on repeating the same thing. And that's kind of like history is, isn't it? It seems like history just keeps on repeating itself over and over. The book of Judges is a really good example of that. In the book of Judges, we discover that the people of God, God's people, rebelled against God. And because they rebelled against God, God brought 
judgment upon them in the form of an oppressor. But after years of oppression, they prayed to God and asked for God's mercy and God's help, and God chose to help them by providing a deliverer who would set them free. And after the deliverer would set them free, they would have some years of peace. And then you know what they did? They would rebel again. And God would bring an oppressor to bring them into oppression. They would cry out to God. God would hear their cries, and God would bring a deliverer, and and he would set them free, and they would have peace. But then they would repeat the pattern over and over again. And that's what we see in the book of Judges. And that's what we see when we read the book of Genesis and we read what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24. He told us, as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be when the Son of Man returns. And so listen to what it says in Genesis 6 as we begin reading some of the story of Noah. It says, then the people began to multiply on the earth. And the daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw the beautiful women and took any they wanted as their wives. Then the Lord said, my spirit will not always put up with human humans for such a long time, for they are only mortal flesh. In the future, their normal life sin will be no more than 120 years. And let me say before I go any further that most translators don't translate this passage that way. And I would agree with them. That's not the best way to translate this passage. Now, and it is true that before the flood, man lived for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And after the flood, man didn't live near as long. And there's a variety of reasons for that. But I don't think that's what this passage is saying here. I I think a better translation of this passage is it was 120 years before the flood that God said, I'm going to bring the flood. And so in other words, he was given mankind 120 years to repent. Let's go on. In those days and for some time after that, giant Nephilites, Nephilim, lived on the earth. For whenever the sons of God had intercourse with women, they gave birth to children who became the heroes and famous warriors of ancient times. The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth. And he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So the Lord was sorry he had ever made them and put them on the earth. It broke his heart. And the Lord said, I will wipe this human race I've created from the face of the earth. Yes, I will destroy every living thing, all the people, the large animals, the small animals, that scurry along the ground, and even the birds of the sky. I'm sorry I ever made them. But Noah found favor with the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, the only blameless person living on earth at that time. And he walked in close fellowship with God. Now turn over to Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, verse 37 and following, we read these words. When the Son of Man returns, it will be like it was in Noah's day. In those days, people before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time Noah entered his boat. People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. That is the way it will be when the Son of Man comes. Two men will be working together in the field. One will be taken, the other left. And as I read the story of the flood and how the world 
was described at that time. I cannot but think that the day Noah lived in is very much like the day we are living in today. And then I read the words of Jesus about the end of this age and, and his return to the earth. And I cannot but believe that the coming of Jesus is imminent and his judgment upon the world is imminent. Now listen, I've always believed that Jesus is coming soon. And what I mean by that is his coming is sooner than it's ever been before. It's closer than it's ever been before. But I've never had a feeling deep inside that Jesus really could come at any moment. I know the Bible teaches that, but I've never had that feeling. And yet today, I feel deep down in my spirit, in my heart of hearts, that Jesus could come at any time. You see, I don't see the world getting better. I don't see a worldwide revival on the horizon. I see people becoming more hardened to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. I see people becoming, <coughs> excuse me, I see people becoming more sinful in their ways than ever before. And listen, I'm not a pessimist. I'm really not. But I think that we are living in the days just before Jesus returns to take home those who know him, those who love him, and judge the world. And like Jesus said, when he comes back, there will be some who are taken and some who are left behind. And believe me, you do not want to be left behind. Now, and as we unpack this passage about the flood and about our world today, there are three timeless truths I want you to discover. And my prayer is that God is going to open up your eyes to not only the condition of our world, how we got here, but I pray that God will also show you your responsibility in this sinful world in which we live. Now here's truth number one. Our rebellion is progressive. And you need to listen. That's how it always is. That's how it always has been. You see, the kind of rebellion that leads to a flood doesn't just happen overnight. It's the culmination of a downward spiral. We don't fall into a cesspool of rebellion against God, but rather we find ourselves wading deeper and deeper in until one day we realize that we are in over our heads, dry, drowning in the filth of our day. And now notice the progression we see in this passage. First of all, we contemplate sin. Now that word contemplate means we, we dwell on it. We focus on it. We think about it. And that's how sin most often begins in our life. We allow a seed to be planted in our minds and all of a sudden we find ourselves trying to convince ourselves that there is nothing wrong with what we're thinking about doing. But I can make you a promise. No sin is acted out until it is first thought about. Now listen to what it says in verse 2. It says, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. And so the sons of God 
whomever they are, saw the daughters of men, and they were beautiful. They began to think about it, to dwell on that, to look at them, to think about them. Now, there are two primary interpretations about what that, that phrase, sons of God, means and, and who that is in this passage. The first one is the sons of God are fallen angels. They're, they're demons. And, and the truth of the matter is, many times in the Old Testament, that phrase, sons of God, is used to describe angels. Three times in the book of Job, that phrase, sons of God, is used. And all three times, it is used to describe angels. And so this could be describing fallen angels who came in and had sex with women. And they polluted the family tree. Because that's what Satan desires to do. Satan desires to pollute mankind to the fullest. But there's another way to interpret this word, sons of God. You see, at the time of Noah, there were two family trees. There were two lines that were going on, that were building, that were multiplying side by side. You had the godly line of Seth, who was the son of Adam and Eve after Cain killed Abel. That's the godly line. And you had the ungodly line of Cain. And we discover that Cain's family line, family tree, just continued to follow after and pursue sin and rebellion. And so many people believe that, that the godly line of Seth, the sons of God, saw the daughters of the world, the daughters of Cain, saw that they were beautiful and they intermarried with them. Now understand, you need to understand today that whenever we begin to look at people or things, or we listen to things that we should not, we are putting ourselves in a difficult situation spiritually. Throughout both the Old Testament and the New Testament, God clearly commands us to be not unequally yoked. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 and following, it says this. It says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. What do righteousness and wickedness have in common? What fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk with them and I will be their God and they will be my people. And then God says this, therefore, listen, this is God's word. God says, therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. The fact of the matter is, the intimate relationships that we build in our life have a profound impact on how we live. And we need to understand that. You know, intimate relationships aren't just referring to sex. Intimate relationships are close relationships. Your close friendships, the people that you go into business with, the people you hang out with, the people that you do things with. And the Bible makes it very clear that we need to be careful opening up our lives to pursuing intimate, close relationships with the unrighteous, those that don't know the Lord. Because if we do, we will find ourselves 
falling into sin. So we contemplate sin. We look at it. We see it. It looks good. And we think, man, I want that. And that leads us to the second thing that happened. We compromise our values. Look at the end of verse 2. It says, and they took any they wanted. So the sons of men looked at the daughters of the world and saw that they were beautiful. And they thought about it for a while. Man, I would love to be with her. Wow, I would love to have her as my wife. And they thought about it for a while. And then it says, and they took any they wanted to be their wives. You see, there is only a small step between contemplating sin and compromising our values. Once we begin to rationalize something in our mind and accept that it is okay, it becomes very easy for us to act on that belief. Now, some will say, well, that was only a small step. And you're right, it was only a small step, but it was a step nevertheless. You see, it doesn't take a large step to get you to fall into sin. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 9, it says, A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. In other words, you only need a little bit of yeast in dough to make the, the dough rise. It doesn't take a lot. And it doesn't take a, a lot of sin to corrupt you from the inside out. Let me give you an example, if I can. How would you like it if, if a friend came to your house, and this friend was well known for being a good bake, a baker, and this friend brought you a, a box of brownies, homemade brownies to your house. And, and you heard that, man, she makes great brownies. and They smell good. They look good. You are ready for these brownies. But then she said, but I've got, I, I got to tell you, they have my secret sauce in it. They have my secret ingredient, just a little pinch of something. And you say, well, what is it? She says, no, I don't tell people what it is. You'd come on, you can tell me. I, I won't tell anybody else. You, what, what is it? What is it? She said, well, if you've got to know, I go into the front yard, I get just a pinch, just a pinch of dog poop out of the yard, <laughs> and, and I mix it in with the brownie mixes. I'm making it. And that's what gives my brownies such a good taste. And you're sitting there going, I think, I think, I hope that regardless of how good she makes it sound, you're not going to eat those brownies. And I think that probably what you're going to do is you're going to say, give me those brownies right now. You're going to throw them away and say, are you crazy? Are you mad? Don't you know that dog poop can hurt you? Don't you know that if you eat dog poop, it can infect you and make you sick and it could kill you? What are you doing? Are you crazy? You're not going to eat those brownies just because it has a little pinch of dog poop. You're going to stay away from those brownies. And you see, our problem is we've compromised with the world to the point today that there is no difference between those of who follow Jesus and the people of the world. We begin to gradually accept evil, then we associate with evil, and then eventually we do evil. There is a poem I learned years ago that teaches this. It goes like this. Vice is a monster of such frightful means as to be hated, needs but be seen. But seen too often, familiar with her face, you first endure. Then you pity and then embrace. 
And that's what happens. You see, we hate sin because we know how bad it is. But then we tolerate sin. But then we accept sin. And before long, we find ourselves doing the thing that we know is evil and wicked. And that's why it is so important for us to stay away from sin. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is, is giving an admonition to the church at Thessalonica. And in the King James, verse 22, he says, Abstain from all appearance of evil. Did you hear that? It doesn't say abstain from evil. I mean, any fool would know that. Christians should abstain from evil. But Paul takes it further than that. He says abstain from even the very appearance of evil. There are things that, that we can do that aren't necessarily wrong, but they can give the appearance of being wrong, that when we do those things, can lead us down the wrong path. Jerry Falwell, who I believe is one of the great preachers of past generation, once said to young pastors like myself, he said, never meet with a woman who isn't your wife by yourself. Never, never, never under any circumstances. Not for lunch, not for dinner, not for some meeting. Don't pick them up and take them in your car somewhere. Don't do it. And then he said this. He said, if I'm driving down the road in a pouring rainstorm and our chairman of Deacon's wife is standing beside the road in the rain. I'm not picking her up. He said, I might stop my car and give her my umbrella. He said, I might get out of my car and let her take my car. But I'm not going to get in my car with her. He says, it's not that I don't trust her. It's not that I don't trust me. But who knows if the town gossip is on the next corner and he sees me in this car with this woman who isn't my wife. And he begins to say things. You can say, well, they're not true. Well, here's what I know. When people say untrue things, once they're said, a lot of people believe them. Amen? That's just the reality. That's human nature. So we're told to abstain from the very appearance of evil. So we contemplate sin. We compromise our values. And then finally, we find ourselves corrupted by our choices. Verse 12 says, God observed all this corruption in the world for everyone on earth was corrupt. That word corrupt means decayed. It means wasted. Everyone on earth was decayed and wasted. I've been pastoring for 40 years. And I wish that you could see the people that I have seen who are healthy, love Jesus. But they compromised and became corrupted. And that corruption, that sin began to decay them on the inside out. And their lives were wasting away. That's what happens. Sin corrupts. We contemplate rebellion, sin. We compromise our values. We're corrupted by that sin, 
And then finally, we're consumed by our sin. Verse 5, the Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth that he saw that everything they thought, everything they thought, everything they imagined was consistently, totally evil, everything. Everything they thought, everything they imagined, they become wicked through and through. Everything about them, their thoughts and their actions were filled with sin and controlled by sin. There was no effort to constrain their, their evil actions. And dear brothers and sisters, that's where we are today. You can deny it. You can buy into the lie. But that's where we are. And what's happened is we've contemplated these lies. We've compromised our values by believing that the lies were true. We've become corrupted by the sin of those lies. And all of a sudden, we're consumed by them. And we don't think there's any way out. Our rebellion is progressing. Second thing we see in this passage is our rebellion has consequences. And this, this passage shows us two very clear consequences. The first one is it breaks God's heart. Look at verse 6. So the Lord was sorry he ever made them and put them on earth. It broke his heart. Sin breaks God's heart. It breaks his heart. God, our creator, made us in his image, in his likeness. He created us, you and I, for an intimate relationship with himself. He is a holy, righteous, sinless God. And he created us that way so that we could walk in relationship. And yet, we rebelled against him. We rejected him. We chose the gods of this world over him. And the Bible says it breaks God's heart. Listen, there are a number of things in my life that, that I believe are guardrails in my life to keep me from sin. One of them is my wife. Not because I'm afraid she's going to beat me if I mess up. No, I'm afraid that I'm going to mess up and I'm going to hurt her. I'm going to cause pain to her. I don't want to do that. My children are a guardrail in my life. I love my kids. And though there are times that I, I don't think they do, my kids look up to me. And though they know I'm not perfect, they know that I strive to live for the Lord. And if I mess up, I blow it. It's going to hurt them. Now I've got 10 grandkids that are following along. And, oh, God, I don't want to hurt them by the choices I make. And then there's you. I know that if I mess up, it's not only going to hurt my wife and, and my kids and my grandkids. It's going to hurt you. But understand, the thing that restrains me more than anything else is God's love. And, and I know that if I make sinful choices, it's going to break the heart of the God who created me for relationship. It's going to break the heart of the God who gave his son as a sacrifice so that my sins could be forgiven and I could be restored. And I don't want to break God's heart. But not only 
will our sin break God's heart? It will bring God's judgment. In verse 7 it says, And the Lord said, I will wipe this human race I've created from the face of the earth. Now if your Bible is open, go back to verse 3 where it says his days will be 120 years again. I don't think that's saying that, that from that point on man will only live at most 120 years. I think what that passage is saying in the Hebrew is that from that point on to 120 years in the future, God is going to show grace. God is going to show mercy before his judgment comes. You see, God always shows grace. He always shows mercy. He did that with Sodom and Gomorrah, didn't he? Remember Abraham's conversation with with the Lord? What if there are 50 righteous? What if there are 40 righteous? What if there are 10 righteous? And on and on and on. And God gave them a chance. What about Nineveh? Remember Nineveh? God said, go and preach that in 40 days I'm going to destroy this city. And what did the people do? The people repented. And God relented from destroying the city. But understand this. Our sin always results in God's judgment. Yes, God is merciful. God is forgiving. God is loving. But God is also righteous. And God is also just. And God must punish sin. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. So our rebellion is progressive. Our rebellion has consequences. And finally, (coughs) our rebellion is a choice. We don't have to live in rebellion. Look at verse 8. It says, but Noah found favor with the Lord. In the midst of all the wickedness of the world, there was one man who stood out, and his name was Noah. The word favor in verse, in verse 6 in the King James is translated grace, and that's what the word is. Noah discovered God's grace. Grace is when God gives us something we don't deserve. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, saves a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. It was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Noah discovered God's grace. Noah wasn't saved because he was godly. Noah became godly because he discovered God's grace. God's grace changed everything. God's grace imparted to Noah made all the difference in his life, in the life of his family, and in the life of humanity. Because Noah was a righteous man, humanity was spared. And Noah was different. In a world filled with wickedness and perversion, Noah was different. And there were two things that really stood out to me about Noah. First is his witness in the world. It says in verse 9, Noah was a righteous man, the only blameless person living on the earth at the time. He walked in close fellowship with God. He was a blameless man. The people he lived with, he worked around, knew what kind of 
man Noah was. He wasn't perfect because no one is. But he lived his life in such a way that everyone else in the world knew that he was different. But Noah didn't just live out his faith. He shared his faith. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, it says, God did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on his ungodly people, but protected Noah, listen, a preacher of righteousness. Did you know Noah wasn't just a ark builder? He was a preacher of righteousness. For a hundred plus years while he was building that ark, he proclaimed the mercy of God, the holiness of God. Uh, listen, it took a while to build that ark. There were no Home Depots or Lowe's to get material from. There were no power tools to use to cut the things. I mean, Noah had to cut down the trees. He had to make planks. He had to do everything. It took a long time to make that ark. And people would come back and say, what are you doing? I'm building an ark. What's an ark? An ark is this thing I'm building. Why are you building an ark? Because God's going to destroy the world with a flood. What's a flood? I'm not exactly sure, but God's going to bring one. You see, up until that time, it hadn't even rained on the earth. God was going to destroy the world with a flood. And what did Noah do? Whenever anybody would come, he would proclaim what God was going to do. And I believe he would say, hey, there's a place for you on this ark if you'll turn to God and repent. For 100 plus years, he preached, he proclaimed the righteousness of God, and yet not a single person repented. You see, your job and my job isn't to, to win people to Jesus. We can't do that. Only God can win people. Only the Holy Spirit can draw people. But our job is to throw out the lifeline. Our job is to proclaim the good news that Jesus saves. And people then have the choice to make. What am I going to do with the news that I've received? But Noah was a witness in the world. And then second... He walked with God. Verse 9, the end of it says, he walked with God. Noah's great-granddaddy was named Enoch. And, and there are only two people in the Old Testament that is described with that phrase, they walked with God. One of them was Enoch's great-granddaddy, or Noah's great-granddaddy, Enoch, and the other one was Noah. I wonder what kind of influence Enoch had on Noah. And I would challenge you who have kids and grandkids, live your life in such a way that, that your kids will look at you and model the kind of life you live because that's what Noah did with Enoch. Now, what does it mean to walk with God? I think it means constant communion. It means that we're keeping in step with God. We're not running ahead of God. We're not lagging behind God. We're walking with God, doing exactly what he tells us to do. Genesis 6 verse 22 says, Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Genesis 7 verse 5 says, and Noah did all that the Lord commanded. And I'm sure some of the things God told Noah to do at this time were really strange. They didn't make sense. But Noah didn't question. He didn't doubt. He just did everything that God told him to do. And have you noticed, if you've read the building of the ark, that there isn't a rudder on the ark. There isn't a steering wheel on the ark. Noah just got on the ark and he was just trusting God to take that ark where it needed to be. 
He was trusting God with every decision in his life. And that's what we're called to do when we walk with God. We are a witness to this world, and we walk with God. You see, there are only two different kinds of people. Those who choose to rebel against God and those who choose the righteousness of God. Noah chose righteousness over rebellion, and it changed everything. My question to you this morning is, which will you choose? Because you're going to choose one. You're going to choose to live in the righteousness of God, or you're going to choose to live in rebellion against God. And the choice you make will make all the difference in the world. Not just for you, but your kids, grandkids, your neighbors, your co-workers. The reality is it'll make a difference in all of humanity. So what will you choose? I want you to bow your head with me. Close your eyes. With your head bowed and with your eyes closed. If you're here and you've never turned from your rebellion against God. Living life your way rather than completely surrendering to him then that's the decision you need to make regardless of how old you are how young you are you see being saved is saying I don't want to live my way anymore Jesus I I want you if you've never done that that's what you need to do today but if you're here and you are a child of God you're a follower of Jesus Jesus has changed your life then I want to ask you are you being a witness to the world are you living in a way that the people you've come in contact with will know there's something different about that man that woman that boy that girl are you being a witness by the way you live are you being a witness by sharing the gospel the good news the hope of salvation with the people you come in contact with we're supposed to and are you walking with God and constant communion with him seeking to follow him completely and totally everything he tells you to do that's what we're called to do that's the only way we're going to make a difference you see there's coming a day where two will be working together side by side and one will be taken they'll go to be with Jesus forever and the other will be left behind if you're the one that is taken, you're going to want to know with all your heart that you did everything you could so that the one that was left behind wasn't left behind because of your silence and your hypocrisy. So if you're here today and you need to give your heart and life to Jesus, I want to invite you to pray this prayer right now. Dear God, I humbly come to you asking you to forgive my sin and rebellion. I'm tired of living that way. Jesus, I know you came to this earth. I know you died on the cross. I know you rose from the grave so my sins could be forgiven. Today I'm trusting you. I'm surrendering my life to this moment on, I want to follow you, Jesus. 
thank you for hearing my prayer. Keep your head bowed. Keep your eyes closed. If you're here and you are a follower of Jesus and you know that you haven't been the witness to the world that you need to be, you haven't been walking step in step with Jesus, then I want to encourage you to pray this prayer to him right now, dear Jesus. I love you. Thank you for saving me. But I haven't been doing everything I need to. I haven't been living a blameless life. I'm sorry. I want to. Give me your power to live that way. I haven't been sharing the gospel with others. I want to. Help me to be bold with my faith. Jesus, I want to walk with you step by step. I want to do everything you tell me to do. I want to live in complete obedience to your word. I'm yours. Use me in these last days.